Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. You might notice that this sounds a bit different, and that's because Lufthansa uh, not only checked in my carry-on, but also checked it in, then lost it uh, with my podcast microphone included. So that microphone is somewhere at Frankfurt Airport as I'm talking to you right now through uh, my iPhone, uh, which is what I'm using to record this, so that doesn't sound as good, and also it will pick up all the noises around me, including passing cars, so bear with me. Hopefully it will just be this episode, uh, but unfortunately it's really hard to tell at this point how long it will take to return my bag. You are listening to the episode 110 on April 6, 2023, and this week's episode we have uh, our guest Adam Barter, he's a director of the European Policy Information Center, talking about the UK's immigration row. What exactly is going on in the UK with the Stop the Boats bill? Also in this episode, Paris bans the use of rental e-scooters through a referendum. And in Europe, plant-based products are becoming more popular. So let's get started. So let's start first with the last topic I just mentioned. European plant-based market is on the rise, says Politico. The sales of plant-based food items across 13 European countries have grown by 22% since 2020, with the market reaching a record 5.7 billion euros in 2022, according to figures compiled by market research firm Nielsen IQ and released today by the Good Food Institute Europe. The growth has slowed to 6% last year after a 15% jump in 2021, according to the figures. Plant-based milk alternatives are the category with the highest sales value, corresponding to slightly over a third of the total market, 2.2 billion euros, followed by meat alternatives for 2 billion euros. So it's a growing market. This is good news. Ultimately, it should be about providing alternatives to consumers, uh, whether they for ethical reasons or environmental reasons or just taste reasons, uh, choose a different product. Uh, I think it's a great example. And um, unfortunately, there has been some damaging legislation by the European Union trying to regulate what you allowed to call it. I believe um, milk alternatives are not allowed to have the word milk on it uh, anymore, as if people thought that soy milk was made from uh, actual milk or actual cows. Um, that is uh, that is the problem. Uh, uh, one of the one of the problems where those products are just you know labeled differently. I think now it's supposed to be called soy drink. Uh, not the biggest of deals, but it's just a level of paternalism that is just you know ridiculous, and I don't think really serves the purpose here. Um, but ultimately, I think this is good news for the climate. It's good news for consumer choice uh, that those products are developing. I know a lot of fast food chains have already taken up quite a few um, uh, plant-based alternatives. Of course, they would taste a lot better if we allowed for genetic uh, engineering to be uh, to be available uh, in the EU. The reason why those products taste a lot better in the United States is because they have access to the uh, GMO technology. But uh, we'll see we'll see how that develops. In any case, I think it's great news that uh, that this market is developing because it means more choices, uh, more uh, returns for those companies to reinvest and provide more alternatives to consumers. Next up, we have 
this story. In the French capital, Parisians have voted to ban rental electric scooters in a referendum, while, a, while the vast majority of ballots supported the, the ban on the app-activated vehicles. Turnout was less than 8%. Officials have promised to comply with the result, making Paris the first major European capital to ban the self-service scooters. Some 15,000 e-scooters are spread along the streets of Paris, but not for long. Paris is set to become the first major European capital to ban e-scooter rentals. In a mini-referendum carried out by the City Hall, only 7% of those eligible turned up to vote. It's a very low turnout on this referendum, but ultimately a fatal decision for the rental e-scooter business, which we've talked about and that we cover in the Sharing Economy Index each year. So, assumingly, um, Paris will probably drop in that ranking because now it won't have the availability of three uh, different uh, rental e-scooter companies, uh, even though it doesn't mean the end of e-scooters altogether. If you privately own one, you will still be able to use it on the streets of Paris. But the business model of having one conveniently close by that you can just uh, rent for a certain amount of time without having to think about where to drop it off and whether it's secure, uh, that is going away. The argument was that it clutters the pavements, that it makes the pavements inaccessible because people park uh, those uh, inconveniently. Um, of course, there's really no great solutions that make everyone happy. I remember using e-scooters in the city of Warsaw, where it's quite strictly regulated where you're allowed to park. And of course, that creates this level of inconvenience as well, where you might have to use the e-scooter to go back to a parking position um, and then drop it off there. Um, none of these things are, are great, but ultimately the solution to ban it completely is a bad one. Um, and we'll see how that will develop because the referendum result in Paris is not binding. Uh, so it doesn't mandate, it doesn't obligate the city to follow the referendum. Of course, it most likely will. And then uh, we might look at a court battle uh, on whether this is actually a fair decision uh, and whether um, Paris is actually allowed to do this. Other uh, cities in France, uh, Marseille is one of them, has been thinking about this. The Brussels city uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Belgium has said that they are closely monitoring the, the evolution of that decision. Brussels having been a uh, cause for controversy as well, uh, where micro-mobility options are taking too much space, presumably. Uh, ultimately, one of the rebuttals could be that maybe the streets are a bit too big, um, and that's maybe why there isn't enough space for e-scooters. I think micro-mobility is a, is, is, is a great secondary choice for people, whether you're using public transport, whether you're using uh, your car, uh, whether you're using uh, any alternatives such as bicycles, I think having those options available is a great way of deciding what's the best way to get around the city. As somebody who does not own a car and uses cars occasionally, I think it's great to have, uh, to have this option available. And it's a bad decision by, uh, by the voters uh, in, in, in Paris even though only 8% really participated, uh, to have uh, said no to that. It's a bit of a generational shift as well. We heard that um, uh, also from some of the representatives by e-scooter companies, that mostly the people who use it are younger and older people are the ones complaining about them. 
So unfortunately, younger people did not turn out to vote uh, in this referendum, uh, in which they might have had an impact. This will impact uh, quite a few people, tens of thousands of users uh, on the streets of Paris using those e-scooters regularly will not have access to them anymore. And I think ultimately, uh, it diminishes consumer choice. And it's not a decision that the city of Paris should even be able to make. We'll see what that means for how Paris fares in the next Consumer Choice Center Sharing Economy Index. Uh, but now let's move to the interview of the week. My guest this week is Adam Barter. You heard him on the podcast before. Uh, he's the director of the European Policy Information uh, Center in, uh, in Brussels. And uh, he talks to a lot of policymakers and he advises on policy. And uh, we're talking today about the UK's new rules on immigration the UK government wants to curb uh, illegal migration and uh, he had some things to say about uh, how it tries to do that. All right, Adam, let's talk about uh, the immigration debate in the UK for context for the listeners. There's been uh, quite some uproar over a bill that wants to stop the boats from coming. Uh, this is uh, migrants trying to get uh, across the channel, the Home Secretary uh, Suella Braverman says that uh, this bill is necessary to stop the uh, uh, migration into the UK and the problem it causes. So uh, what are your thoughts on the matter, Adam? Is this is this a good way to go about it? It has been indeed a very hot topic of discussion. I think there may be a cynical reason for it and a more proper, uh, adequate reason for it. If I want to be cynical, uh, this whole immigration, small boat arrival topic always suddenly arrives when the conservatives are losing popularity. Um, I think it's one of their topics where they can appear as the leading political party in the UK that's strong on illegal immigration. And once again, uh, with the elections about less than a year ahead, um, it's a topic that they want to dominate with within the political discussions. But that doesn't mean it's not a relevant topic, uh, because uh, the Home Secretary is right. Uh, illegal or irregular crossings over the channel have been increasing in recent years, and there are many reasons for it. Um, so currently, at the moment, we have about 10,000, 20,000 people arriving each quarter um, with no legal paperwork. So this may be on small boats uh, from France. This may be some irregular air arrivals. But the main gist of it is that we don't know why exactly these people are coming and what they would like to do in the UK. Some of them are genuine refugees. Some of them are economic migrants. But the common thread is that they want to establish their life here in the UK. And I think the problem is twofold. Uh, first of all, um, there is no legal pathway to claim uh, refugee status um, if you're not a Ukrainian or if you're not coming from Hong Kong. I think that's the primary reason that we need to address rather than the small growth crossings. If as a liberal democracy, we do believe in basic human rights, then I think we should enable anyone from the globe who's fleeing persecution uh, to apply for asylum status in the UK. And at the moment, if you're not Ukrainian or from Hong Kong, it's impossible to do. And the second reason uh, why I think this is happening at the moment is because the um, immigration status for low-skilled immigrants or the pathways for immigration for low-skilled immigrants has become more difficult. 
So since Brexit, a lot of um, the emphasis has been on high-skilled immigration, and politicians often talk about why it's necessary to have doctors, lawyers, uh, bankers coming to the UK and paying a lot of taxes, which I think is fair enough. But what we often forget is that low-skilled immigration is very much contributing to the well-being of British society as well. If you're looking at the agriculture sector, if you're looking at the service restaurant sector, there is a massive, massive labor shortage at the moment. And a lot of these economic immigrants, uh, a lot of them coming from Eastern European countries that are not in the EU, so Albania is, is one of the uh, main uh, countries um, with a lot of uh, refugee applicants. They're, they're clearly not refugees. Um, Albania is a you know, reasonably well-developing Eastern European country. They're not fleeing political prosecution, but they want to establish a better life for themselves in the UK, earn more money, and maybe even return in five, 10 years time. And the problem is at the moment, there is no easy pathway for these people to come to the UK. So they have to uh, essentially choose illegal ways to get here. The UK has always had quite a quite a complicated immigration system, even visiting the UK, if you're not within the realm of those people that can uh, visa-free uh, visit uh, the UK, has always been uh, both expensive, cumbersome, um, and uh, and really, really, really difficult overall. Um, there's been so much talk since Brexit about the shortages in uh, in, in, in low-skill labor. Um, why isn't, like, is, is the government addressing this at all? Are they, are, they, are they looking for solutions? Because all that we hear out of the UK is usually, uh, when it comes to migration, is always related to the problems, but never really to the opportunities. Is there an actual strategy within the government? When it comes to low-skilled immigration, there is very little debate and thinking about it. Um, so post-Brexit, essentially, the societal sentiment about immigration shifted a lot. So in the early 2010s, um, the vast majority of the British population became quite hostile against uh, immigration. I think that has partially to do with uh, Eastern European countries joining the EU and a lot, a lot of Poles, Hungarians like myself, coming to the UK and trying to establish a life for themselves. And maybe the kind of fast-paced change uh, the fast-paced change had an impact on people's perception, how towns and cities were changing, and there was quite a lot of hostility against immigration in, in such high numbers. Um, you know, the Brexit referendum happened in 2016. Um, then a lot of debate and discussion revolved around kind of the positive contribution of immigrants, European immigrants, to the society here in the UK. And ever since, the sentiments have been shifting and shifting in a positive direction. So there is my, now much, much more support for legal immigration in the UK um, and increasing the number of immigrants compared to eight years ago, which I think is a good thing. How political parties are capitalizing on this we don't really see it at the moment. So even the Labour Party um, under Keir Starmer, I think they want to appear as more of a traditional, uh, patriotic, uh, left-wing political party rather than more of a globalist, you know, new book lefty type uh, of party. And I'm afraid kind of immigration got caught in this. Um, I think there is very much a patriotic case uh, for more immigration. 
Um, but at the moment, neither Labour nor the Conservatives are making that case. And I think that's a problem because although they were right on Ukrainian refugees and enabling them to have much, much easier uh, pathways uh, to, to um, immigrate, and they were right on the Hong Kong refugees as well, I think there is a case to be made for widening uh, these systems much more broadly. Do you think there's a religion aspect that plays into the considerations here? I mean, you mentioned Hong Kong and Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, uh, even though it does have a Muslim population, is not overwhelmingly represented in that way. Hong Kong, not at all. Um, do you think there's a there's a there's a perspective here where there's a sentiment um, uh, that is that is discriminative against Islam, and that's why uh, countries in the Middle East don't uh, benefit from the same advantages that people from Hong Kong or Ukraine would have? In some people's minds, there may be, but the numbers don't really substantiate that. So if we're looking at the arrival countries um, for most immigrants in the last five years, um, it shifted quite a lot. So it used to be very much Eastern Europe, and now it's a lot more global, a lot more um, South Asian, um, including Muslim-majority countries. Uh, so I don't think the legal system in the UK is set up uh, to discriminate against certain uh, religions or certain parts of the world. Uh, the bigger problem is that we are um, not letting a lot of people in who could be or are genuine asylum seekers. So um, one of the key policies now is essentially to deter uh, asylum seekers is to transport them to third countries, mainly Rwanda. So there is a bilateral deal between the UK and Rwanda. Um, and essentially, if there is something potentially fishy about your application, you're not going to be assessed here because assessment, unlike 10 years ago, where over 90% of the asylum seekers were assessed within six months, now it's only 10%. So there is a massive, massive backlog with the Home Office. So instead of um, trying to um, address that backlog, essentially the Home Office says, all right, we are deporting all the potentially problematic cases uh, to Rwanda to assess the application. But the problem is that, of course, Rwanda is a somewhat freer country than many other. But if you are a gay right activist uh, escaping from Iran and you're deported to Rwanda where being gay is equally illegal, um, it's, it's not a place for you, right? Um, and, I, and I think there hasn't been enough consideration by the UK government and by the Home Office on the actual genuine asylum seekers who are now endangered because of this policy. Um, and, and this is not something that any of the political parties are willing to address, um, unfortunately. So I think this is something that will go uh, forward as planned. Um, and, and a lot of these cases will be assessed uh, with, with the asylum seekers being in Rwanda rather than the UK. Yeah, the Rwanda deal is, is a bit strange um, overall. And, 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 and then a lot of this narrows down to this whole rule of the first country of entry, which for many people, unless they were able in their home country to go to an embassy and go through the process, uh, which, is, which is very difficult, they usually end up, well, not traveling by plane, and then they end up in a country uh, that is definitely not the UK. 
And this is a system that is not only applied in the UK, it is also applied by EU, EU member states, which uh, largely benefits, especially those countries that are landlocked and, uh, uh, and also very uh, resistant towards taking in refugees. Uh, your home country, Hungary, is one of those. Um, how can this system be improved? Because with all the administrative work that would need it, that would be needed in a country that you're trying to leave, let's say you are in Afghanistan, and at this point it's really difficult to go through a, any type of process remotely and then taking a flight, which is already a pro- problem of its own. How can this be fixed? Like, how can we say you might have arrived to Turkey first? Um, but you can now apply to to go on to another country. How could this be? Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, there was an attempt by the European Union to address this problem. So during the 2006 migration crisis where uh, the Western Balkan routes has become incredibly popular and there were literally hundreds of thousands of people crossing in an irregular manner, um on on a quarterly basis the eu tried to address this and the idea was that if you apply to any eu country yes you may be assessed in hungary or you may be assessed in romania but there would be an internal distribution mechanism to relocate immigrants within the eu i think this is also a an imperfect solution uh simply because if you know, let's imagine you're arriving from a country where the second language is English, or you're arriving from a country where the second language is French. Obviously, you want to go to a place where it's easier to find work, where you speak the language, where you might already have family members, the kind of not letting these individuals freely choose where they want to move to. I think it it is shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, sure, it's possible for people to learn Lithuanian, Polish, or Hungarian, but possibly the uh, labor market and the opportunities and the cultural background is going to be more difficult to deal with for a lot of the asylum seekers if they can't choose their country of origin or their country of, of settlement rather than um, the, the EU doing it instead. So. I, I think there has been an attempt to fix this, um, but the easiest way would be essentially to agree uh, with uh, embassies and with other third parties that these are allocated points where you can claim asylum status and your your status and your application will be assessed within a reasonable period of time. And if we deem that you have a rightful case, then you're welcome to uh, fly to the UK, fly to France, fly to Germany um, in a legal and safe route rather than force people to do these illegal crossings. It's not an easy endeavor because a lot of the people who are aiming to get to these countries are not necessarily asylum seekers, but they're economic migrants. I think economic migrants should also uh, have a pathway uh, to find a job um, in, in European countries. Um, it might not mean permanent residency rights. It might not mean citizenship. But if you know, you're from Albania, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, and then you want to work for five or 10 years in the UK, support your family back home, and then uh, once you have earned some proper money, uh, go home, 
I think that should be a perfectly feasible way to do things. And indeed, this has been the case for a lot of Eastern European immigrants when the UK was in the EU. A lot of them arrived in their 20s, 30s, worked by 10 years. And then because life was so much cheaper back home, once they had saved up some money, they left again. So the fact that we don't enable this kind of immigration and this kind of labor market, I think it is a problem. And up until that's resolved, there will always be attempts for irregular border crossing. Well, I hope the UK is not losing you yet because you think that you've amassed enough capital, Adam. Uh, but I have about a minute <laughs> left on the clock and I wanted to ask you, this epicenter represents organizations that uh, that prescribe to the ideas of liberalism. Give us the elevator pitch. Why does why why should liberals, what, what, why, what is the liberal argument for supporting um, um, migration and, and, and refugees that are, that are looking for shelter? Well, I think part of it is individual freedom. Uh, so an arbitrary location where you happen to be born shouldn't determine your life prospects forever. And part of it is our own economic self-interests. I think if you look at countries that have high levels of immigration and a reasonably flexible labor market, they're economically much, much better off than countries that restrict immigration and have very stringent labor regulations. So if we want to be richer and if we want the world to become a better place, then I think there is a very strong case of easier uh, immigration, uh, which is not necessary what's happening at the moment, but I hope that um, we can work towards that in the near future. Well, count me convinced. Adam Bartha from Epicenter, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Thanks, Bill. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. Despite the uh, different audio, you can follow Adam Bartha on Twitter at Bartha underscore Adam. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, and I hope to have better audio on Thursday. You have to learn.